Good morning, happy Sunday everyone. This is Amy and welcome back to the LBC podcast. Today we continue our series on the parables of Jesus, his teaching on the kingdom of heaven. Over the last few Sundays I've been doing a course with the Scottish Baptist College on reading the Bible as a story, a good reminder for us and an exploration that the Bible is one whole story from Genesis to Revelation. It's been good to remember that any passage we read in scripture, we read in light of that whole story. And it ties in nicely to the parable that we have today. So with that in mind, let's take a look at this week's story. It is from Matthew 25, the parables of the bags of gold. Our Bible reading for today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, and it's Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. That's Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. This is Jesus speaking about the kingdom of heaven. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another, two bags, and to another, one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also, the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who'd received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bags of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. 
and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As we get into the later parables of Jesus, they can become increasingly complex. With multiple characters and plot points, it can be a bit of a minefield to work out how we discern what Jesus was teaching. Which bits are kind of the main point and which bits are just details that we don't need to get into. So before we look at this week's parable, here's a quick guide to working out where the main points in a parable usually lie. Some parables are what we call monadic. Think mono, meaning one. Imagine these parables as a circle or a full stop. Within the circle, there is simply one character and one plot point. Think about the parable of the man who found the hidden treasure or the vendor who found the pearl. Usually the point is simply the action of that one character, something that most likely we are to do or not to do. We don't need to look for multiple hidden messages beyond that one point. Some parables are called dyadic, meaning two. Think of the word dialogue. Picture these parables like a line connecting two people. In dyadic parables, there are two characters, and usually it's a servant and a master. We see this in last week's story of the shrewd manager. Here, we're invited to reflect on the relationship between the two characters and learn from their dynamic as the plot unfolds. Today's parable is what we call triadic. Tri meaning three, so think of a triangle. Triadic parables have at least three types of characters and a more complex plot. Usually in a triadic parable, we're looking to compare the different courses of action taken by two different groups or individuals, compare them to one another, and then compare the response of the third person. Think of the prodigal son. We compare the behavior of the two different brothers and we compare the father's response to each of them. While these aren't hard and fast rules, they do help us to think about what shape the parable is and use this as a guide as we begin to interpret it. So let's have a look at our triadic parable. Again, the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another, two bags, and to another, one bag each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who'd received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who'd received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Because this is a triadic parable, the focus is on comparing the different course of actions taken by the servants and the master's reaction to each one. We don't have to worry too much about why they were given different amounts or how they made their money. Certainly we can speculate. There's some biblical significance to people being given different levels of responsibility according to their ability, 
but we don't have to stretch this parable any further in that direction. We know from the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the peril that money or treasure or gold is often used to represent something far greater in Jesus' teaching. On a basic level, this parable can teach us about the biblical investment of our money and resources. But knowing that the parable points to a bigger concept, that is the kingdom of God and its place within the wider context of scripture, there's a deeper story that we can unfold. As I always do, I'm going to take us way back to the beginning of that story. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. If you recall the biblical pattern that we learned from the parable of the tenants in the vineyard, God creates and then he commissions. We're told in Genesis 1 that God created the earth, separating the land and the sea, filling it with plants and creatures of every kind. He then creates humans to live in it, have authority over it, and to bear fruit and multiply in it. Here's what it says in Genesis 1. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. It appears in Genesis 1 that God's work in forming the earth is complete by day five. And then he creates humans as the icing on the cake on day six. Their job is to enjoy it and to maintain it. But this is not quite the case. Genesis 1 gives us a telescopic view of the creation story, painting the picture in broad strokes. But when we go to Genesis 2, we get a closer and more detailed view of what's going on when God places humans on the earth. You might remember from way, way back in our Genesis series, we looked at the apparent contradictions between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, it appears that God creates the earth, everything in it, and then as a crowning glory, places man into this fully formed garden. Then he rests from his work. But in Genesis 2, we're told that prior to the creation of mankind, the garden had not yet flourished because there was nobody there to work it. Now, this is not a mistake nor an inconsistency in the recording of the creation story. This is a deeply significant indication of God's intention for his people. So let's go back to Genesis 2 and read it. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. In verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The earth had not yet flourished. That is, it had not reached its full potential. 
because man was not yet there to work it. God did not place man in a fully formed and finished garden to simply sit back and enjoy it. God placed mankind within a garden full of raw material and unlimited potential in order that mankind could then creatively work towards its flourishing, investing work that would see something produced in return. I love Tim Keller's definition of work. He says that work is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular to thrive and flourish. God entrusted us with resources and responsibilities that should not lie dormant, but be working in such a way that God's creation thrives further in our care. Work is a blessed part of our creation mandate. Our work, therefore, is not simply a means to an end. It's not a necessity by which we make money. Work is the very mandate by which we express the image of God within us and the purpose of God given to us. We are the creative co-laborers of God, operating in his likeness throughout the earth. In their fruitfulness with expanding generations, they could work from the garden outwards. The garden was just the start of Adam and Eve's newly commissioned work. Here's a quote from John Mark Comer's book, Garden City, where he unpacks this theme. You were made to do good, to mirror and mimic what God is like to the world, to stand at the interface between the creator and his creation, implementing God's creative, generous blessing over all the earth and giving voice to the creation's worship. John will be speaking at Canopy next week, so you definitely don't want to miss him. Each of us is created in the image of God. Each of us has an innate capacity for this creative work in its most biblical sense. As God's image bearers, we're each given gifts and skills and authority over the earth to work it, cultivate it, steward it, create with it, all in a way that reflects our creator. Now, of course, the reality of that work looks very different today. We might not think that our natural gift for accountancy or engineering would have been a necessity in the Garden of Eden. But at their very core, those skills are God-given so that you can contribute to the creation mandate to see the earth and everything within it thrive. The subsequent fall of man that we see from Genesis 3 onwards is the reason that work has become something often considered more of a necessary evil. Part of the curse for the sinfulness of man is the turning of our work from a creative delight into a necessary toil. And it's something that has been further corrupted by the fallen powers and principalities. Here's what it says later on in Genesis. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. 
that which was given for our benefit and our blessing became a bind and a burden. Working the earth was supposed to be a joy, but the curse of the fall means that the earth is actually going to work against us. This is why in a profoundly spiritual level, we see sinfulness in every dimension of the working world. We see the exploitation of others to avoid our own work, obsession with work to gain control, power or wealth, work that is at the expense of the community and our own well-being, a resistance to work and the failure to contribute to the flourishing of the earth, and work as a means by which others profit from the exploitation of those who are forced to work to their own detriment, work that robs them of the dignity they possess as creative image bearers and labourers for God. We also see the raw material God has gifted us being exploited in ways that not only fails to help the world thrive, but operates to its detriment. Looking forward, when people imagine their version of heaven, taking the kind of skewed traditional view of us floating in the clouds in eternal rest, among many other biblical inaccuracies about our eternal life, they project the idea that not having to work is the goal. But Genesis indicates that this is not the case. We are not trying to get out from under the burden of work entirely. The truth is that what God will most likely bring us when the kingdom comes to completion is a redemption and restoration of our creative work, whereby once again it's a benefit and a blessing. While scripture does speak of us entering eternal rest, this isn't rest from work. It's rest from the struggle of sin. In the new heaven and new earth, God may well give us new roles, new responsibilities, and once again, unlimited potential that we've to creatively work into fruition. Work will once again become a blessing and not a burden. My favorite author, Dallas Willard, says, when it comes to eternity, we will not sit around looking at one another or God for eternity, but we will join in the eternal logos. We'll reign with him in the endlessly ongoing creative work of God. It is for this that we were each individually intended as both kings and priests. So what does this have to do with the parable of the gold? When we read this parable, it's easy to think small. We can see a story about wisely investing our money or our talents in serving the local church well. But remember that Jesus begins this parable, like many of the others, saying that the kingdom of heaven is like. So we know that this story is more than advice for a current moral dilemma or instruction for good living. It's an indication of how we ought to operate under the rule and reign of God. And that encompasses both the beginning and the end, not just the present. So like we viewed the parable of the tenants as an eschatological narrative about how the kingdom of God operates and how its citizens behave, we can see a wider view of our calling to take what God has given us and invest it in such a way that we cultivate something more as we were created and commissioned to do. This is represented by the master giving the servants the gold and trusting them to go and manage it wisely.
When we look at Jesus, teaching in his immediate context, we can trace themes from this parable back to the beginning of our biblical story. However, we can also read it in light of Jesus' subsequent death and resurrection. Has that changed anything in regard to how we read this parable? The master setting up his business and entrusting it to stewards is a theme that carries through beyond Genesis and beyond Jesus. Let's have a look at what happens in Matthew 28, just a couple of chapters on from this parable, following the death and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Parallel to God's commissioning humanity in Genesis, this new commission is reflected in the parable as well. We see the master going on a journey and leaving his stewards to carry on his business. Through his death and resurrection and transfiguration, Jesus establishes the beginning of a new work. As he prepares to leave his incarnational home, he entrusts the disciples and subsequently the church to carry on as stewards of his kingdom business until he returns. Now, this doesn't cancel out the commission given in Genesis. We haven't swapped one for the other. The imperative or the emphasis in the Great Commission is not, therefore, go. It's a given that people will be going. They will be going about the business of the original commission, working towards the flourishing of the earth and everything in it. The emphasis in the new commission is that as they are going, as they are going about this original business, that they also make disciples. Jesus has created a new way of life by his death and resurrection and now commissions his followers to take it forward and live it out. They are to create, cultivate and steward the earth and along with it be fruitful and multiply in bringing new citizens into the kingdom until he returns. This is the work the master has entrusted to us. Much like in Genesis, he has not left us ill-equipped. At the end of Acts 1, Jesus says, It's not for you to know the time or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Where the disciples were, was like the new Garden of Eden. It was the starting point. They were to take what they had and to work outwards to the ends of the earth. As God created mankind in his image, in his likeness in Genesis 1, so Jesus imparts the Holy Spirit, God's very presence dwelling within us, so that we reflect the nature of God as we live out his commission. One day, he will return and call us to account for what we have done with what we have been given.
In Corinthians, we're told that each person is given gifts and responsibilities according to their ability for the building up of the church, for doing the work of the Great Commission. And there we see the call for each of us to invest in doing our part for the flourishing and growth of God's kingdom. Again, a reflection that each of us is an image bearer of God, now empowered by the Holy Spirit to work in a new way. Remember, the garden was God's dwelling place. But we're told that we are now God's dwelling place. The Holy Spirit within us makes us God's dwelling place through which he can work. Those gifts and talents are the raw material that we have a responsibility to use and to invest. Just as the garden didn't flourish until Adam came to work it, so our gifts and our talents don't flourish unless we invest them and put them to work. There is room for both divine provision and human initiative to co-create. So this is where we see the faithful servants go to work. They take their master's treasure, they invest it and they see it grow. Upon the master's return, they are delighted to show him what they've been able to produce with the capital that he entrusted them with and willingly hand it back to him as they've each been empowered to do. Each one says, here's what you have entrusted me with and here's what I've done with it. The master in his delight then invites the servants to share in the joy of what has been produced. But what about the unfaithful servant? Instead of taking his master's money and investing it or making a profit from it, he buried it. Out of sight and out of mind. As we know from the parable of the hidden treasure, this was just a common way for people to keep their valuables safe. When the master returns, the servant digs up what has been entrusted to him and he simply hands it back. It has not flourished or increased under his stewardship and the master is angry. The reason or excuse the servant gives is that he believed the master was an unfair, greedy man who would take more than he gave. The servant claims that he was afraid and so out of fear he simply limited his own involvement and responsibility. But the master calls the servant out for contradicting himself making it clear that this was not, in fact, the problem. If he had truly believed that the master was a mean man who would come back and demand more than he gave, and if the servant was truly afraid of this, then surely he would have done at least the minimal amount of work to produce a profit to hand over, even if all he did was put it to the bankers to gain interest on a loan. The servant's real gripe is that he did not want to hand over the potential profit to the master because he believed that profit to be rightfully his own. The clue in his statement of defence says that the master was a hard man who reaped where he did not sow. In other words, the servant is saying, you didn't earn this or work for this profit, I did, so it should be mine you'd be taking what isn't yours. As I said before about the wicked tenants in the vineyard, in each case where God creates and then commissions, 
Humans are giving stewardship over the land. We are tenants who've been given blessing, provision, freedom, authority, and responsibility for what is ultimately God's and not our own. Taking or withholding what's not rightfully ours is always where human problems begin. The servants were given their allotted bags of gold to manage for the master. The money wasn't a gift or a loan. The money was never theirs. It was their responsibility. Now they were free to use their initiative and in how they invested it and how they worked it according to what they knew of their master's character and priorities. Perhaps they invested it in ways that were beneficial to the local community or economy. But whatever they did, the money was always the master's and therefore so was the prophet. He had given them the raw material to cultivate and invest. Therefore, whatever came from it also belonged to him. The unfaithful servant used this alleged misrepresentation of the master's character as an excuse to absolve him from his responsibilities and justify his objection in handing over the rewards. It's this that the master responds most strongly to. It's not the lack of profit or creative return. Note in scripture that whenever God asks a question, like when he asks Adam and Eve, where are you? He's often highlighting the core issue and inviting people to own up to their mistakes or their misdeeds. Any question from the Lord is an invitation to honesty. He asks the servant, You knew that I harvest where I did not sow? Question mark. He's not confirming the servant's point of view. He's questioning it and pointing out the hypocrisy of it. He's asking how the servant could know that the master was such an awful man. We see from his response to the other servants that he's not, that he's trusting and that he's generous. He's given his trust generously to the servants and upon return of their investments, he generously invites them to share with him in the joy of what they have achieved. The master's right then to be angry that this unfaithful servant has painted him as hard or greedy or withholding when his actions from the outset have shown otherwise. He's perfectly entitled to ask for the profit on his own capital and he doesn't need to allow the servants to share in that joy and yet he does. As our friend Mr Snodgrass says, the human ego can find limitless reasons why no one should reign over us. People can consciously or unconsciously hold misunderstandings or misrepresentations of God's character to absolve them of their responsibilities or claim ownership of something which in reality is simply under their stewardship. These misrepresentations of God's character can also be used as a defense for those who don't want to submit to God's authority. In the case of the shrewd manager, which Jim helped us navigate last week, the manager's actions were unintentionally tarnishing the reputation of his master. Upon realizing this, the manager set about to put it right, even if only to save his own skin. 
Although his actions were ethically questionable, the manager went out of his way to restore people's understanding of the master's true nature as one who is generous, forgiving and gracious. Despite his actions being somewhat selfishly motivated, he is commended for knowing his master's character well and representing it fairly in the end. But here in this parable, our unfaithful servant does not know his master's character. He does not know him and therefore cannot work in a way that is pleasing or in keeping with him. We see this play out today when people are stubbornly resistant to the invitation to explore the Christian faith. They often throw out defences like, God is just angry and controlling. God starts wars. God's hateful. God wants me to give up my money and be poor when I earned it and it's mine. God asks for more than he's entitled to. In some cases, this view of God's character is genuine misinformation. It's not hard to have a skewed understanding of God when we look at the way Christians can behave. Sometimes the busyness of church life is expressed as a great frustration or a burden, which to the outside world seems like a pointless charade. Who would sign up for such an unenjoyable workload? Like that shrewd manager, we ourselves can misrepresent God's character to the world and they are quite right to then dislike the version of God they're being presented with, though one would hope that they'll look for the real thing themselves. A representation of God will always be imperfect at best. However, at other times, this view is constructed and held as a defence, one that absolves people of their responsibility to come under the sovereign authority of God. Many people resist the idea of having a faith that requires them to work physically or spiritually or to sacrifice certain pleasures because they see God as mean or stingy or even frightening, someone who just wants to work them for his own enjoyment. Who in believing God's character to be like this would be a willing worker? Conversely, how much more will the good stewards work to invest their next set of responsibilities? knowing that their master was generous in sharing the reward with them and allowing them to enter into his joy. Those who have seen the goodness of God in their own lives and the lives of others will regard any responsibility from the Lord as something ultimately worth the work because they know their master. Those are the true citizens of the kingdom. By their very definition, citizens of the kingdom are submitted fully to the rule and reign of the king. Those who serve him must know him. And to know him, we must choose to see him as he is. It's in the willing submission to him and the true knowledge of him that we can be trusted by him and share in his joy with him. This parable to me is still a great encouragement. It's an encouragement about the intersection of divine will and human initiative. It's what we call the permissive will of God. God holds space between his work and ours, allowing for creativity, ingenuity and development. 
We are not slaves or servants or employees. For as Jesus says, a servant does not know his master's business. We are friends, stewards, co-laborers. We have freedom and authority to carry out the work of the king according to his will and character. In order to do so faithfully, we must know him well. We must study him, listen to him. His character is revealed in his written word. It's embodied in the life of Jesus. And it's expressed through us by the counsel of his Holy Spirit. We have the raw material, so let's steward it well for a master whom we know and love. Because this work is not just for now, it's for eternity. Dallas Willard says, A place in God's creative order has been reserved for each one of us from before the beginning of cosmic existence. His plan is for us to develop as apprentices to Jesus, to the point where we can take our place in the ongoing creativity of the universe. Those who are trusted with little will be trusted with more. May we become people who are known to the world and to the Father for work produced by faith, labour prompted by love, co-creating in submission to the Master whom we know, that one day we may also hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. As always, we like to leave you with some questions that we can discuss together over coffee on the Zoom chat afterwards, or you can contemplate on your own or even phone a friend. So here are our questions based on today's parable. How does the idea of God's permissive will, that's the combination of divine will and human initiative, shape or change your understanding of serving God? Question two. As we serve, how can we represent God's character well and share our God-given mandate for work in a way that will attract and inspire others? And finally, what do you hope or imagine that your redeemed work might look like when Jesus returns and we enter the eternal rest from the struggles of this world? What do you hope you'll get to do? That's it for me today, friends. I hope you find this helpful. Next Sunday, there won't be any podcast because we'll be joining live with the Baptist Union for Canopy, their online version of the assembly this year. The bad news is it starts earlier than our usual service, so you'll need to be ready to tune in at 10.30 a.m. The good news is that's the day the clocks go back, so you'll be getting an extra hour in the day. Next Sunday, join the live broadcast through our Facebook page or the Baptist Union of Scotland at 10.30am. Don't forget that starting in November, we'll release Series 2 of the Conversation Series right here on the podcast. 
This will be a four-part conversation with guests that you may know and will love, melding together three things, the parables, prayer, and our future plans. These are conversations aimed to help stoke the church's imagination about bringing the dynamic rule and reign of God's kingdom through his people to our communities. That's it from me. I hope everyone has a good week. Stay safe and stay well.